1: Sadakat Qadri is an English barrister and a human rights lawyer. He's also a very well-traveled writer. His latest book examines the cultures and conflicting concepts of justice that have shaped Islamic law. His new book is called Heaven on Earth, a journey through Sharia law from the deserts of ancient Arabia to the streets of the modern Muslim world. Sadakat Qadri, welcome to Legally Speaking. Hi, Marty. Thanks very much for having me on. So I understand you spent a total of five months on the road doing research for this book. Um, I'm wondering, uh, before you started, did you have a very clear sense of where you wanted to go, who you wanted to talk to, and what questions you wanted to ask? Or was yours an itinerary that kind of evolved as it went along?
0: Uh, the itinerary definitely evolved. I mean, the, the, the whole book was actually a process of evolution, I've, uh, I, I'm, I'm a lawyer in the UK, I'm, but, but my field is human rights. Uh, I'm also a Muslim. i been born a Muslim and regard myself as a Muslim. But uh, to be perfectly honest, when I started this book, I didn't have a clue what the Sharia involved. I mean, the, the reason I actually started writing it was because, uh, I mean, it's, it's got, it's, it's actually got a very unfortunate history. Um, my last book, was written in New York. I arrived there just before the September the 11th attacks happened. Um, That book was on the history of Western jurisprudence, uh, the trial of history from Socrates to A.J. Simpson, it's called. but, and, and even though everyone after September the 11th was talking about Islam, Islamic law, these kind of things, I, I, I maintained the focus for that book, obviously, on Western jurisprudence. But it was published in the UK in April 2005, and three months later in the UK, we had what we call the 7-7 bombings, um, when four Muslim men... Um, blew themselves up and also killed more than 50 innocent people uh, and they claimed that God was their justification uh, my last book had just come out uh, and I started thinking to myself well what's, what's, what's this about, what is, wh- what is this Islamic law that they're talking about and so that was the, that was the germ of, of, uh, of the book I started doing research um, I got commissioned to write the book um, and the first half of the book is historical the first half of the book deals with 1400 years of of Islamic history, because that's one thing that many people forget when they talk about the Sharia. People simply associate it with the most uh, brutal manifestations of, of justice in Islam in the Islamic world today, amputations and stonings and beheadings and these kind of things. Um, but the Sharia actually has a very, very, very long history. It's, it's as old as Islam itself, which dates back to the early 600s. And, um, and so I thought, if I'm going to write about this thing, I need to explain the history and in order to explain the history I needed to learn the history because even though I'm born a Muslim I didn't know the history myself um, I spoke to my father I asked him about the Sharia I asked him after the 7-7 bombings well what does the Sharia actually say about suicide bombing of course we all know that it's wrong um, and I don't know a single Muslim who would justify suicide bombing um, but what I, what I wanted to know is where are the sources you know I'm a lawyer I wanted to know where are the sources what kind of what do they actually say about this stuff when people have these arguments what are they referring to my father who's also a lawyer didn't know the answer to, that, to those questions so, uh, so I started with the history the first half of the book the first six chapters of the book um, deals with the history of Islam and the development of Islamic law as a legal tradition um, I'm not a theologian. I don't get into uh, what's right and what's wrong about these different interpretations. What my purpose is to show that there are um, dozens of, uh, of, of different interpretations of Islamic law. There are f- formally, um, to this day, uh, four schools of Sunni law, a separate school of Shia law, which is subdivided itself, and within those schools, um, there are many, many different ways of interpreting Islamic law. And so... And and so I deal with the history in the first half, but then the second half, um, I decided it was very, very important for me to travel around. And that's when I went uh, traveling around the Muslim world. I spent five months, um, and I started in my father's birthplace in India, and I ended up in Egypt.
1: So traveling in the circles that you traveled in, did you very often get the sense that the kinds of questions that you were asking were making people very uncomfortable? Sometimes they made people
0: uncomfortable. Sometimes people were all too comfortable answering them. I mean, I met, I I, I went to uh, the the madrasas. Um, I met human rights lawyers. I met judges. I met ordinary people in mosques and in cafes and on the street. Um, uh, Plenty of people uh, were... As curious as I had been uh, to find out about the Sharia, because one of the things that you quickly realise when you start researching this stuff is that um, most Muslims don't really know
1: anything about the Sharia, except that someone else knows more than they do about it. You you travelled at times with bodyguards. Uh, Did you ever feel, at any point, that your life was in serious danger? Well, I think it would be melodramatic to say that I that
0: I thought I was in serious danger. Um, but, but certainly it was there, there were risks. Um, Pakistan is inherently a dangerous place. And in Karachi, in order to go to madrasas, in order to uh, meet, meet scholars in mosques, um, I had to travel through slum areas. Uh, one of the areas that I went through was an area called Liari, um, which is steeped in poverty, always has been. Um, and I went with a friend of mine. He was a political activist. Um, He has uh, had uh, death threats against him in the past. He's been subject to assassination. When you say political
1: activist, what, what, what sort of politics was he active in. Completely
0: <laughs> secular politics. He's, uh, a, he's, he, he's an activist with the PPP party, the, the same party that, um, that Benazir Bhutto led, that the, that the last president, Asif Zardari, led, and that was founded by Benazir's um, father, uh, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto. So he was a secularist politician. Uh, he's had assassination attempts because in this slum there are turf wars between different um, gangs, and gangs tend to shade into political parties. Nothing to do with religion. Um, but, uh, there is violence in these in these slums. Um, and so I had to travel with bodyguards. I went to, um, I went to mosques um, with these bodyguards, uh, armed bodyguards. I went to madrasas with these bodyguards. Uh, there was one occasion when I was interviewing a scholar in a mosque in Liari, and uh, a gun battle erupted outside. Uh, first of all, we heard the crackle. You heard the shots outside. Yeah, heard the crackle of, of gunfire. I'm no expert, but I, I could sense that something was wrong just from the expressions of of everyone else there. And uh, and then I realised that it was a gun battle because it became unmistakable. Um, The meeting was hastily terminated. Um, We had to make our way back into the van um, and we drove uh, with our lights out uh, very slowly because apparently that was the best way to do it rather than to speed through the um, slum. Very slowly we drove uh, to my friend's apartment I uh, say apartment, it was a one-room one slum... Uh, ...and we had to spend the rest of the night uh, there... ...while machine guns uh, were fired all around us. Um, now that sounds very dramatic. You know, it is very dramatic. I'm not, that's not the kind of thing that I'm used to at all. Um, but within the Pakistani context... ...one has to understand that this is, uh, a, this is a country... ...this is a violent country. And I do think it's very important to recognise... ...that even though this violence is very often associated with religion it doesn't arise out of religion. You know, the, 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 the rivalries that were being played out in that slum, uh, I heard them while I was in a mosque, but they were political rivalries between different ethnic political groups. And that's something which quite often gets overlooked when, uh, when Pakistan gets covered, for example, in the, in, in, in the Western media. Um, there's a tendency to just associate violence in a Muslim country with the religion. People forget that actually... Violence can just be violence you know violence
1: doesn 't a religion can it fuel that violence yeah it
0: certainly can yeah. and and in in the Pakistani context specifically it has and you know in the, in the context of Islamic law it has I mean, one of the chapters of my book deals with the uh, one chapter deals with the revival of criminal law another chapter deals with the revival of uh, blasphemy laws over the last thirty forty years because this, these are very recent this is one of the main points again of my book that this is that this this is a revival, this isn't something eternal Um, the the, the, the Islamic criminal law, if we went back 40 years, wouldn't have existed anywhere in the world other than Saudi Arabia, wouldn't have been applied anywhere in the world other than Saudi Arabia Um, it's it's since the early 1970s that it's taken off Um, and in countries like Pakistan countries like Iran there are brutal punishments being applied in the name of Islam so there's no denying that violence can be associated with um,
1: with uh, with religion did you grow up in a, a, a religious household would you describe yourself as I mean what kind of a Muslim are you yeah
0: well I mean these, these are these are difficult questions I'm, I'm yeah. probably not as good a Muslim as some people <laughs> I'm a better Muslim than other people yeah. um, you know the religious tests uh, are always are always tricky but I grew up in a in a relatively observant household. Uh, there are members of my family who are uh, uh, who are more observant than me. There are members of my family who are less observant than me. Uh, you know, this is the, 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 to a certain extent, it could be said that I'm just a cultural Muslim. I don't think that that's true. Um, but you know, these the, the, getting into the nuts and bolts of theology, I really genuinely don't think is 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 very important, and I certainly don't think it's useful. Um, it, there's, there's, it, in, in Islam itself, that's the view that's been taken for 1,400 years. Um, there's a word in Arabic called takfir, um, which means to, uh, to call someone else an infidel, to call someone else a kafir. Um, and that is one of the gravest sins that you can commit in Islam. And that isn't just an abstract idea, because the thing is that the people who are... ...wandering around saying, well, what kind of a Muslim are you? Are you a good enough Muslim? Um, They are the ones who are justifying things like intolerance, like blasphemy laws... And, like, uh, suicide bombing, of course. Um, and one of the biggest struggles that take it, that's taking place in the Muslim world at the moment is the struggle against these Tukfiri, um Muslims. You know, the Muslims who say, I'm a better Muslim than you are. Um, so I really actually don't think it's particularly constructive to, to, to talk about uh, who's a good Muslim and who's not a good Muslim. At the end of the day, it's for God yeah, to judge.
1: I, my question was not whether, you know, you're a better Muslim sure. than someone else, but, you know, in terms of describing the kind of Muslim you are... I guess- Go to <laughs> yeah. mosque.
0: Yeah. I, I, I fast. I don't fast always, but I do fast on occasion. Okay. Um, I, uh, I I believe in God. I believe in the prophet. These kind of things. Uh-huh. Uh, it's. You know, I, I mean I and I try to live a good life. I mean, what kind of a Christian is a Christian? What kind of a Jew is a Jew? It's uh, you know these. The, the, it's, it's 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 a part of my identity. You know, and th- and to that extent, yes, it's a cultural. It's got a cultural. Aspect, an important cultural aspect as well you don 't see any tension between
1: the Islamic identity that you hold on to and your secularist identity yeah there 's a tension there no, is. there's a
0: tension definitely there 's a, 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 a tension if, if, if one is wrestling with issues if one 's if one's trying to work out what one believes and where one stands in relation to the world there 's always a tension you know, the people who don 't have attention. Very frightening people, in my opinion, you know, because they are just absolutely sure about where they're going and whether they are. Uh, sure about their atheism, or whether they're sure about their religion, or whether they're sure that it's right to blow people up in the name of Islam. They're frightening people. Um, obviously, the people who blow people up are slightly more frightening than the uh, than the uh, than the atheist who uh, simply says that, uh, that, that that other people are mad to believe in God. And when I say slightly, I'm being ironic. Much more frightening. Right. Um, but, uh, but 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 there's there's a tension there, definitely.
1: Yeah, and I guess that tension is not, is not if you're an intelligent person that tension is never entirely resolved. No. It's, it's a journey sure. that, that is constantly being revisited, right? Sure,
0: sure. And, 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 and part of the tension involves doubts. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not going to say uh, that I don't have doubts. Uh, I'm a human being, and I do have doubts.
1: You described a meeting that you observed in Damascus. This was kind of a question and answer session. And the person doing uh, the answering uh, was a highly placed ayatollah who uh, you describe in your book as uh, the spiritual leader of Hezbollah, or at least who is known to be the spiritual leader of Hezbollah. And uh, at one point, as you describe in your book, one of the students asked a a rather interesting question. He asked the ayatollah, is it okay under Sharia law to have sex with a genie out of wedlock? Uh, do you remember the Ayatollah's response? Yeah, yeah,
0: I remember. I remember. It was Grand Ayatollah Fadlallah um, who who died, who passed away, I think, in 2012. Um, and he was he held this this Q and A session, uh, and yeah, he was asked this question by a, a student, and he said. Uh, Why are you asking me this question? It's okay as long as you use a condom. Next, please. Um, And the the, the,
1: (laughs) yeah, it's a wonderful story, and it begs all sorts of questions. And I guess the first, most obvious question is: Was that inquiry made in all seriousness? No, it wasn't. It was not. Well, it was. It was. you see it's, 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 there's two things going on
0: there because basically what was happening was the, 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 the student belonged to a rival faction the student was trying to embarrass um, Fadlallah because Sheikh Fadlallah has views about um, sexuality which are uh, regarded as unorthodox by more puritanical um, Shia Muslims and so this student belonged to, that, to one of these more puritanical sects he was trying to um, embarrass him by, by, by shifting the conversation conversation ...conversation towards sex. Um, uh, Grand Ayatollah Fadlallah didn't want to talk about sex... um, ...and he wanted to talk about other things. But, you know, there is a serious component to this... ...which is that um, there there, there are uh, traditionally... The the, the genies have been just, the jinns in Arabic have been just as uh, subject to the Sharia as human beings. Uh, Jinns are invisible people, uh, an invisible race made of smokeless fire, and they're subject to divine ordinances just as much as human beings.
1: And is the belief in jinns or genies still very prevalent in the Islamic world?
0: It's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of there's a weird mentality about this you talk to, any, you talk to plenty of people about jinns and they'll laugh at it yeah. um, but on the other hand uh, there are plenty of people who, who swear blind that they've seen them that they've encountered them uh, the, I, I met one guy he's, his father in Pakistan his father was a teacher and, uh, and his father um, Used to uh, make uh, used to, used to be known for um, shouting in, in his class when there was no one there, and he was asked who he was shouting at, um, and he said that there were jins um, in his classroom that he'd have to teach.
1: So uh, these are not the jinns that in the Western imagination pop up out, you know, from uh, la- oil lamps and grant people three wishes. That's no, that's no, not no, the that's image Aladdin, they have in the Aladdin,
0: Muslim world. Sinbad. no, 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 <laughs> it's not 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 that. It's uh, it's no, they can be they can be they can be pretty terrifying creatures. So I mean, they're, 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 they are the descendants of um, the, 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 the pre-Islamic Arabs were an animist uh, people were, or were strongly affected by animist beliefs and they believed in sprites and, 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 and desert uh, uh, desert gods and all sorts of elemental forces and um, jinns certainly have a lot of characteristics in common with those uh, pre-Islamic deities um, and they can be potentially uh, very, very powerful in the They Islamic tend to be tradition. bad
1: news, right?
0: Good. No, they can be very good news. They can be good news. They can too. be good okay. news. They can be bad news. But they're pretty unaccountable. Yeah. Um, you don't, you, you, you don't know what they're going to do. Um, the, 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 the time that I got closest to experiencing jinns myself was in, uh, it was in, India, in northern India. I went back to my father's hometown. My father's born in a town called Badayu. Um, and it's one of the oldest Muslim settlements in northern India, along with Delhi itself and Ajmer. It's one of the first settlements of the Muslims, uh, settled long before the Mughals arrived there, the better known Mughals. Um, it was settled in, I think, the, 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 the early 12th century. Um, and for almost a thousand years, it's been known as a place where you will go if you are possessed by a jinn, because jinns can take control of your mind. That's the way that, that that that's the way that it's been uh, the, the, that jinns are often understood, particularly in this area, um, this poor and, uh, and 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 very often uh, uneducated area. Um, and so people head over there if they've got a relative who's experiencing signs of mental disturbance, who's being irrational, who's being hysterical. Um, they, people would, will head over there in the hope that um, that that. That you can be cured of possession of a jinn, and there are all sorts of shrines. I think there are seven shrines in the in the town, um, ancient tombs of 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 people reputed to be saints, and um, and so I um, I went to uh, went to one of these. uh, shrines and saw, you know, there were dozens of people, uh, hundreds of people in total, waiting there. Dozens of people who seemed to be um, possessed by something. Whether it was a jinn or not, I've got no idea. Um, but they were possessed by something, and they were just they were they were there um, waiting around, just hoping, praying um, that they'd be cured. And this was according to the Sharia. You know, this, it's, it's, it, there are plenty of things that can be said about that. You know that it's yeah. that it's desperate, that it's hopeless, that these people should go to hospital, perhaps. Um, but on the other hand, there aren't hospitals that they can go to. These um, these shrines are providing them with a service. They're sometimes providing they're providing them with a place to stay. Uh, it certainly isn't a perfect solution. But you know, the, the important thing, from my point of view, when I was writing the book, was that I wanted to start there because I wanted to show. Uh, readers that, look, this thing called the Sharia is something which is a lot stranger than you might give it credit for. So
1: even when the question is asked in in, in jest or half jest, when when a highly placed ayatollah says that it's okay to have sex with a jinn or a genie out of wedlock as long as you wear a condom, does that say anything particularly interesting or revealing about Sharia law in general? Well,
0: I mean for me what it w- 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 the, the, the important thing for me was that they were joking about it, but they were um, referring to ancient ideas because there are there, 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 the, 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 a thousand years ago people were writing books, very serious books about the legal liabilities of uh, of 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 jinns and of human beings, and more particularly about what should happen if there was sex between them. So this isn't a joke. This is something which actually people were writing about. Um, Now, for me, I don't think that sex with jinns happens. um, But the fact that it can still be debated in a seminary uh, in modern Damascus... Says something about Islamic tradition because there are plenty of people who are going back to the old sources and are taking and are, and are picking and choosing and taking interpretations of Islamic
1: law which have got far more practical impact, um, which uh, which which involve. I mean, it was a, what I'm struck by is that the Ayatollah's response, and let's just take it on its face. Uh, was somewhat legalistic, you know. Sure, sure, And, and that, that, that's kind of, apart from how bizarre that story is, the, the legalistic way in which he responded, well, it's okay as long as you do this, you know. That suggests to me something interesting about the law, that it, uh, that just as in Western law, there are uh, loopholes, perhaps, sure, sure, pretenses, sure. Uh, that all
0: exist. Sure, I mean, it was, treat- it was treated as a joke at the time. People did, people did laugh when, when, when he said that. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, maybe I I don't find it entirely as strange because, I mean, I wrote wrote a book before, uh, like I've mentioned, The the Trial, and one of the chapters in that deals with um, this phenomenon which took place for 500 years in in Europe where animals were put on trial. Um, Animals were put on trial for all sorts of acts, um, up to and including murder. Um, They were given lawyers, um, they were... were, um, evidence was produced against them and if they were found guilty um, they were put on death row and they were they were hanged by the neck or by the heels until they were dead. Um, Now obviously that's bizarre and it's a joke um, from a modern perspective but on the other hand if one's going to try to understand what was going on one has to kind of put oneself in the mentality and there is there is a level I think I think about the animal trials then, and I think about um, this the Grand Ayatollah's uh, Fadlallah's response now, where yes, the law is being used to assert a degree of order on a world which is inherently disordered, um, and that's what the law does. That's what the law's about um, in any context, you know. And that's what that's, that, that's what um, scholars of the Sharia um, try to do. Uh, with very differing consequences, um, sometimes very dangerous consequences, often very uh, perfect, perfectly uh, ordinary consequences. So the, the Sharia regulates things like marriage. It, it explains how you should uh, deal with uh, deal with death, mm-hmm. uh, how you how you should treat your parents. You know, so, so the the Sharia is a way of conducting yourself. Um, there are interpretations of the Sharia which allow for uh, very brutal uh, consequences, um, but it's a far, far, far broader tradition than, than, yeah. than those consequences so alone. So,
1: in addition to talking about sex with genies, hmm. uh, you also talk in your book a little bit about sex change operations. <laughs> yeah. And in this regard, uh, you note that uh, after the Islamic Revolution <clears throat> excuse me, of 1979, Sex change operations became, I don't know if they became common in Iran, but Iran became something of a mecca for these procedures. Uh, I I don't think a lot of uh, people in the United States uh, realize that. Uh, You would associate uh, Iran with sex change. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, how did that happen?
0: Yeah, I found that out um, where, after I attended a conference in the town of Gom in Iran. Um, there was a speaker whose presentation interested me. He was talking about Islamic attitudes towards tolerance. Um, and it was, it was a, a relatively liberal presentation. Um, and so I wanted to find out more about his background. I, st- I talked to a few students afterwards. And, and I said, well, you know, what's this guy's story? And they said that he had... Um, he'd won his scholarly spurs as it were by a thesis that he'd written which was all about the rights of um of transsexuals and i i said well you know what's that about and it turned out i found i found out partly from the students and partly because i did my own research um it turns out that uh that it's this he's not some kind of a barren rogue scholar on a frolic of his own um He was simply uh, writing about something which has become very, very orthodox in Iran, because no lesser figure than Ayatollah Khomeini himself in the early 1960s issued a fatwa, a word which in Arabic just means an Islamic ruling, issued a fatwa saying that if a person is trapped in the wrong body, um, and the wrong sex, then they should be... Enabled to, um, to, to, to 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 realize their true identity. Um, now, quite why he did that, who knows? Um, but uh, but what it meant was that after 1979, um, it became lawful to have sex changes. More than that, um, the state began to subsidize sex changes. And the the the, the, the latest figures that I was able to um, find uh, suggest that uh, Iran. Uh, conducts seven times as many sex change operations as the entire European Union combined. Um, now, when I say that again, this is in,
1: a well kept secret in the West. It seems to me. I mean, there have been there, there, <laughs> there,
0: there have been uh, the, the, a couple of documentaries on it um, because it is very interesting, but they they don't they, they, it doesn't get very it doesn't get very much publicity. Um, but as with so many things in my book, it's 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 it's. There's two sides to the story because, you know, this can be presented as an example of, of great liberalism in Iran or of unexpected liberalism, at least in Iran, and it certainly is unexpected. Um, but, you know, it's got to be remembered that Iran also uh, potentially makes homosexuality punishable by death. Um, there have been arguments for years about whether apostasy... Changing one's religion should also be punishable by death. Formally, actually, interestingly, it isn't punishable by death under the penal code. That hasn't stopped the punishment being applied, but, but it, formally it isn't. But, so the situation that you have in Iran is that it's uh, not just legal, but it's encouraged that you should change sex if you want to. Yeah. But if you want to change
1: religion, um, you run the risk of execution that, that's rather paradoxical, is it not? Rather paradoxical, yeah. indeed. Uh, the, the other thing that I, I find fascinating here is that to the extent to which pretenses are employed, I mean, there was a case in Nigeria in 2002 where a divorced woman, I'm not sure if she was divorced or widowed, but she became pregnant. And the country's highest court ruled that the woman had been carrying this child in utero for five years, sure. which you know, uh, you know allowed this woman to be spared... A stoning. I mean, those sorts of pretenses are interesting, and they reflect, you know, perhaps as much as anything else, the pressure that the international community imposes on these countries, so that they find a loophole or, or a way out of, uh, you know, uh, executing. Sure, uh, it's a, it's,
0: a, the it's, it's 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 well established in Islamic jurisprudence that um, that, that pregnancies aren't limited to nine months. Um, yes, and uh, the, the the precise. Uh, length of gestation varies in different schools. The Malachite school has got one of the uh, longest periods of gestation perhaps affected by the fact that, um, that its founder uh, claimed to have been in the womb himself for uh, um, I think it was three years um, and you know what this, what this reflects, the levity aside what this reflects is the fact that in the 7th century um, the Muslim world and the world in general was a very uncertain society. People, you didn't know how long your husband was going to live for. Um, the, the social relations were very, very fluid, and so this this idea that gestations can last for a scientifically impossibly long time yeah. um, does reflect uh, the the the. the, the, the the belief of jurists that it is important um, to have a loophole to be able to exercise mercy in these uh, in these cases now, of course it could be said, well look why don 't we just go back to basics, scrub the initial rule um, in the first place, but that isn 't going to happen
1: let 's say the king of Saudi Arabia. Decided to uh, one day defy the clerics and scholars in his country and issue an edict that would allow women to drive their own cars. Would that be very difficult for him to do?
0: It would be difficult for him to do. It wouldn't be impossible for him to do. And one of the interesting things about Saudi Arabia is 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 that there is this tension that exists between the executive and the judiciary. The judiciary tends to be very, very conservative. Um, judges in Saudi Arabia do claim to apply the Sharia directly. They they claim effectively to be mediating God's will. Um, and so what that leads to is a legal system which uh, from a Western perspective is can be very arbitrary indeed. Um, and uh, uh, there was there was a there was a, a case in uh, a few years back. I don't remember the exact year. It was a couple of years back um, involving a, a girl. She was 17 years old, um, and a male friend um, who were in a who, who were in a car together. Um, now, in uh, Saudi Arabia, that's a serious crime, um, and there were seven men um, who saw them at it. They pulled them out of the car but they didn't just pull them out of the car. They then proceeded to rape the girl, and they raped the guy. Um, These men were arrested, they were charged, um, and they received um, sentences. I think they were jail sentences. But they weren't the only ones who were tried. Um, The girl was also put on trial for being with this man, and she was sentenced to, uh, I think it was 100 lashes, Um, and the guy was sentenced as well. A lawyer appealed, a human rights lawyer... Appealed because Saudi Arabia does have some very valiant human rights lawyers, um, and her sentence was doubled, um, and the lawyer was disciplined for taking the appeal. Now, what happened in that case was that the uh, was that the king stepped in and the king issued a pardon after an international outcry. Right. Um, and that's a pattern which you see again and again and again, that uh, if there is a completely outrageous sentence, which obviously offends the sensibility of, of anyone decent, I would argue, um, then the, 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 the monarch steps in and the monarch overrides this thing. And there is this battle going on. Um, you know, one could say, well... You know, why not start from scratch? It's just not as e- it's not it's not that easy to start from scratch. But it's very important to recognise from the outside that this isn't some kind of a monolith where um, where everyone is, is just is pushing for all adulterers to get stoned to, to be stoned and, 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 and all women to be beaten if they if they get behind the wheel of a car there's a there's a battle that's taking place in Saudi Arabia just as much as there is in every other muslim country and it's very important if you're going to uh, side with liberalism in that situation as i do um, not to make bad arguments but to make good arguments and part of the reason part of the way of making those good arguments is by being familiar with, uh, with, yeah. with the history of Islamic
1: law. Yeah. Well, it seems to me just like Jews and Christians, Islam has its uh, intellectuals, it has its mystics, it has its progressives, and it has its hardliners. But let's suppose just for a minute that I'm a hardliner, and I want to make the best case possible, the strongest case possible, based on Sharia law, that it's okay to fly a jetliner into a skyscraper to try to kill as many people as possible. What, what Quranic verses would I cite, what hadiths would I quote, and what figures in uh, Islamic history uh, would I refer to? Al-Qaeda um,
0: began by justifying its actions specifically in relation to the Arabian Peninsula. Um, Saudi Arabia, um, because there is a hadith which is attributed to the Prophet, of, uh, an oral tradition um, which which says... That's that distinct from the Quran. That's, that's, that's the
1: oral the tradition that came after the death of Muhammad, Sure. Right? Well, these, yeah. these hadiths were, were, were first written down about 250 years after the Prophet's and death. And these hadiths describe what the Prophet did
0: and what he said. Sure, but they're yeah. very contested. There are yeah. thousands of these hadiths. Hundreds of thousands, right? Well, it's depending been, no, on, who, depending on who's, who's counting. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's one scholar who claimed to have memorized a million of them. Uh-huh. Um, but there are certainly uh, thousands of hadiths which are uh, which are regarded as um, as being potentially uh, authentic uh, at the, among Sunnis and many more among Shia as well. Um, and there's a hadith which which says that the Prophet Muhammad, on his deathbed, um, said that two religions shouldn't exist on the Arabian Peninsula. They should only Islam should reign supreme on the Arabian Peninsula. So after Operation Desert Storm. Um, The first Gulf War, uh, the Americans stationed permanent bases, or apparently permanent bases, on the Arabian Peninsula. That was one of the main reasons that Al-Qaeda moved its operations from Afghanistan, or moved the focus from Afghanistan after the end of the war there in 1989, Towards the Arabian Peninsula, towards what was going on there, and that hadith was used as a justification. Um, there are also other uh, hadiths which express hostility, or there are verses in the Quran which express hostility towards Christians and Jews, just as there are verses in the Quran which express um, support for uh, Christians and Jews, um, because the Quran was revealed over a 20-year period. Um, but one could one could cherry pick those verses as well. Um, because and then one would say that, uh, that necessity Islam has a has a concept of necessity and one would say that uh, that that, it, that it's impossible to uh, to, to to fight uh, combatants on the battlefield in the United States um, and in that situation you do what you can and what you can do is uh, board a plane and kill. Um, 3,000 innocent people that would be the argument now you know I don't really want to go too far into it because you know it's it's an argument
1: which I find repulsive um but that would be the argument let's say we want to make the strongest case possible based on sharia law that it's not okay to fly airplanes into skyscrapers how will that case what will that case sound like um, well, I guess you start with the Quranic verse um,
0: which says that to, uh, to to kill one person is to kill all of humanity. humanity. That's a good argument for not killing 3,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, you, there are the, 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 the verses which, um, which justify um, war and uh, violence in the Quran are vastly outweighed by uh, the number of verses which talk about mercy and compassion. Um, so you cite those verses. Uh, you... Uh, you say, talking about the argument of necessity, you say of course this isn't necessary. Um, necessity by analogy with, uh, the, 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 there are analogies with the same, similar kind of arguments that exist in Western jurisprudence about necessity. It's got to, it's got to there's got to actually be no alternative and clearly there are, even, if, even if one accepts the premise that, uh, that the one's fighting a defensive war, one wages a defensive war against the combatants in the place where that war needs to be waged. You don't target Non combatants who may include women, who may include children, um, who've always been subject to enhanced protection under Islamic laws of war, just as uh, all other medieval laws of war. Um, So
1: these are the kind of arguments that you'd make. So much of Sharia law, of course, is based on the revelations of Muhammad which are found in the Koran. Uh, but unlike Jesus, uh, Muhammad did lead as a prophet, it seems to me, two very different kinds of lives. There was the life he led in Mecca as an essentially peaceful preacher, and then there was the life that he led in Medina, uh, waging war against the leaders of his birthplace. And, and out of those two lives came revelations that, at least on the face of it, were not... They not always seem entirely consistent. So, after Muhammad's death, how did the uh, Islamic schools of jurisprudence that were established deal with those apparent contradictions? Well, what happened is that um, there
0: was a, nothing really in uh, in Islamic history, uh, nothing in the Islamic world was written down other than the Quran for about 100 years after the, the prophet died so until the, 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 until the mid uh, 8th century you didn't really have a literary tradition in the Muslim world so we're hampered by sources here um, but, but after I'm going to use Christian dates here because it's just easier um, after 750, around 750 um, you begin to get uh, texts written and Come the uh, end of the the 8th century, the late 700s, um, you get scholars who are looking, for example, at ideas of holy war, at ideas of jihad. And there's a specific practical reason why they're doing this, because the war with Byzantium, um, the, the main Christian power in the region, then based in Constantinople, was hotting up. And they, the, and, and they needed to work out, look, how do we actually get the manpower to fight this war? And so the, 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 author, the, the now orthodox view of jihad was born, which is that um, if a Muslim ruler declares a jihad, it's every person's duty to fight it. It's got to be a Muslim ruler. That's the, that's the, um, uh, that, that, that's the conventional tradition. Um, but in order to do that, they had to work through these verses, and there are plenty more verses in the Quran which talk about mercy and compassion, and there are which talk about war. Um, and there were specific practical consequences which uh, which you've which you've raised. There were specific practical um, exigencies which meant that the Prophet uh, waged war after getting to Medina because basically he was in a war situation. He it was it was it was them or us. In that, in, in that context, in that seventh-century context, um, but what they did was they, they, they the, because it was difficult. You've got a, you've got a book which is divinely inspired, and yet the verses are apparently contradictory. How do you deal with that? So an entire science was born, um, which in Arabic is is called nasr. It means abrogation, um, and the idea. Was, the idea became established that there were certain verses of the Quran um, which had been abrogated. That isn't to say that they, weren't, um, that they weren't holy at some level, that they weren't eternally valid at some level, but they were abrogated and they'd been replaced by other um And the ones that were abrogated tended to be
1: the more pacifist
0: in this specific context at this specific time yes because what, because what happened is that they said that uh, because, because these arguments were going on even then people said well look hang on wait a minute Islam is a religion of peace um, You know, why are we fighting wars here uh, why, why are you telling us why are you telling, uh, or why are you telling ordinary people that they should go out to war and the argument that was used against it um, against this was that it is, a, it is the duty of every Muslim person to fight a war yeah. um, and uh, and so yeah so the, 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 I, I, I forget the numbers now, but there were, I, think, I think it was more than 100 verses yeah. um, which talked about the need for peace and compassion uh, were regarded as being, uh, as, as being w- w- were said to be abrogated when they came into conflict with this, um, w- w- with this
1: uh, uh, the imperative for war. So given what you just said, I'm curious what your reaction is to uh, what... Samuel Huntington wrote back in 1993. Uh, he wrote a book called The Clash of Civilizations, sure. and uh, he argued that the cultural differences between Western secular democracies and uh, the Islamic world were, uh, to a large extent, irreconcilable. Uh, he wrote, quote, Western ideas of individualism, liberalism, constitutionalism, human rights, equality, the rule of law, democracy, free markets and the separation of church and state often have little resonance in Islamic cultures. Uh, do you think Huntington was altogether wrong about that? Well, you know, to be fair on
0: Samuel Huntington, he's, he's, he's often portrayed as as being the apostle of clash of civilizations, you know, this, the, the post-911 clash of civilizations between Islam and the Western world. You know, his book was bigger than that. His book dealt with other, um, with, with, with other cultures as well, Confucian culture, etc., and um, the, 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 the fact that, that I mean, there, there, there are differences. There are definite differences. I mean, individualism is something which is stronger uh, in the Western world than it is in the Muslim world. Um, there are communalist ideas in the, in, in the Muslim world, and in many, but, but, but you know, these, these ideas are strong in, throughout Asia, for example, strong throughout Africa. Um, and Islam itself is a changing body of beliefs. You know, the the Quran, of course, isn't being changed. The Hadiths, the sources aren't being changed. But the interpretations, the understandings of them clearly are being changed because you've got huge Muslim populations now in the West. And to be told that the West is inextricably opposed to this or that, uh, whether it's as I say I think that I've got my differences with Samuel Huntington's thesis but I don't think that it can just be shrunk down to that but you know there are people who say that they're essentially different never the twain shall meet, it doesn't make any sense because I'm an example of the twain meeting and you could say that uh, well, you know, you're a schizophrenic. You, uh, you, you, you obviously have deep personal issues or something. I don't think I do. I have, I have issues just like everyone has issues. Um, I have issues about my background. I have issues about where I'm going. Um,
1: I um, have issues too, but we're not going to go there. This, well, I could this ask you around. about that. <laughs> um,
0: but, uh, but, but, you know, there are, there are millions and millions and millions of Muslims who are wrestling with these, with, with, with these issues. Um, and the faith is being transformed. Their faith is being transformed as a result. And the West is being transformed as a result as well. You know, I mean, the, the country that I was born in, um, the United Kingdom, I was born in the 1960s, was a very different place from the one that I'm in today. Now, there are some people who would just, who would say, yes, it is, and, and, and much the worse for it. I, you know, I don't think so. There are cer- certainly some bad things, uh, but the mere fact that it's integrated a lot of immigrants from a lot of different places, not just Muslims, but from a lot of different parts of the world. For me, it's just part of my world, you know, and I, I can understand that some people are frightened by, by that. Some people are nostalgic for a long lost white England, which was very different, but... You know, this the, 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 the West is being transformed just as immigrants to the West are being transformed. And
1: Islam is part of that process. Yeah. I have to say that the first sense I got that there was anything close to an irreconcilable difference between our Western culture and the Islamic culture was back in 1989 when the Ayatollah Khomeini issued that fatwa against Solomon Rushdie for publishing that novel that he wrote called The Satanic Verses. You know, Rushdie wasn't killed, but 18 people uh, all, all over the world who were associated with the promotion and distribution of that book were killed. You know That, that of course, is a reprehensible thing, but I'm wondering, as a Muslim, as a religiously sensitive person, uh, do you think Rushdie and his publisher share any re- moral responsibility at all for those deaths?
0: No, I don't, no. I, do, I, do, I, 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 I think that i mean i've read the book um, and i can see i, I, I can see the, the the legends that he's pulling from i can see the that there are arguments to say that he's that he's drawing on a long Islamophobic tradition, etc., etc., but Salman Rushdie is a novelist. Yep. You know, so, novelists draw on traditions and these kind of things. Right. I don't think he bears any response. You can't, you don't, you don't blame uh, I'm a writer. You don't blame writers for, uh, for, 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 the, for the way Well, let me,
1: let me quote something that you wrote in your book here. You say, quote, there are important arguments to be had over the ideal balance between the interests of individuals to do as they desire and the interest of religious believers in having their faith respected. There are also good reasons why people should sometimes avoid saying things even if laws recognize their right to speak. Any community worth that name needs a citizenry that can empathize with emotional pain it does not feel and that calls for manners and taste as well as statutes and constitutions. So under that logic, might it be said that Rushdie is at least guilty of bad taste if not Bad well, You
0: know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a reader. I read novels, and I don't... I do, you know, for me, it just doesn't come naturally to say that, uh, to say that someone shouldn't explore ideas in a novel. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are people who disagree with me, all, all, all power to them, but that's just my... That's, that's my view on that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I do think it's important to be aware of, of, of these issues. I, you know, I think Salman Rushdie very likely, almost certainly was aware of those issues. Um, you know, whether he, whether he struck the right balance or not, uh, is, is for plenty of people to judge, you know, in hindsight maybe even he would have said he didn't strike the right balance I don't know. Back in
1: the middle ages the Muslim world was in so many ways light years ahead of the West and particularly with respect to justice whether it uh, came to uh, you know, presuming people uh, were innocent until proven guilty whether it came to uh, giving people the right to remain silent or uh, 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 ignoring confessions made under duress. Islam judges were embracing those notions in the Middle Ages, while Christians in the West were still burning witches and still holding these trials by ordeal. So what happened that uh, that, that, that explains how this extraordinary sophistication atrophied in the Muslim world while the West Caught up and eventually, in, in so many of these areas, leapt ahead. Well, you know, history moves, but history
0: doesn't move in a straight line. It's uh, you know, the, it, it's, the, things things move at different rates in different ways. Um, one easy answer to your question, it's a very general answer, but it's an easy answer, is that these Muslim countries were destroyed. They were destroyed, but the, the societies, the, the political structures in these countries um, were. were were, were effectively destroyed by colonialism, whether that was by occupation or whether it was because of the terms of trade um, turned against, for example, the Ottoman Empire. Um, They were weakened, they were eviscerated, they were obliterated. Um, And when the traditions were picked up again, because they have been picked up again at different points, um, there was no continuity there. Um, Mm. So what you had was that you had people um, who were very often in in difficult situations, in situations where they were trying to organize against colonial powers, for yeah. example, um, picking and choosing the traditions which would which would most effectively galvanize the community so out of the against the outsider. So
1: out of the rubble came something more primitive.
0: Well, you know, I wouldn't use terms like primitive um, because it's... Well, first of all, because it's just not... It's, 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 yeah. it's, it's, it's just a not very useful term, I w- I, I, I'd argue. It doesn't, it doesn't resonate um, very well. Um, but but also because it, it suggests that there is this inexorable move from primitiveness to civilization and you just and, and you move in this direction, but then you get knocked back, and then you move in. That's that's not actually, I think, how history works. You know, once upon a time. Um, historians used to think that, you know, you've got this idea of weak history, that everything's moving towards the, um, the, 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 towards, towards perfection to, everything's nirvana. advancing towards good, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly, nirvana yeah. to yes. use a yes. non-Islamic term, <laughs> yes. um, but, um, but that isn't, I think, how history works, I mean, history, history goes around it double ba- doubles back on itself, it does all sorts of strange things um, and where we are now you know, I there are plenty of ways in which the Islamic world is perfectly civilized, thank you very much. Um, but there are certain ways in which I would regard it as being uh, not not primitive, brutal. Um, you know, the, so I, I, I don't think there's any other word for chopping someone's hands off in the in the 21st century, or uh, for stoning a for stoning a, a young woman to death for an alleged act of adultery. Um, but th- that doesn't mean that
1: things can't change again. And I think you know they they, 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 they will change again. So, having taken this fascinating journey and written this wonderful book, I'm wondering uh, to what extent you view the world differently now than you did before you took on this project.
0: Well, you know, I mean, it's 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 simple things, I suppose. I mean, I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm I'm more aware of the of comparative international perspectives. I mean, I have to be as a, as a international human rights law. But in but the the the, the, the if one, if one works in the field of human rights, there's a level at which one can get very absolutist about um, human rights because human rights are fundamental values, you know, and I believe that they're fundamental values. But it's also important to recognise, without being relativistic about it, without saying, that, oh, you know, um, the, the equality might be OK here, but equality isn't OK there, it is important to recognise that people do things differently in different places and at different times. And, you know, going through 1,400 years of of Muslim history, um, there have been these ebbs and flows, these ups and downs. You know, there have been times when, as you say, the Muslim world has been so much more um, enlightened, so much more advanced than the Western world. You know, at a time when... uh, the Western world was holding trials by ordeal, you know, making people walk over hot coals to produce to prove their innocence, you know, because God would cure, would, would would ensure that they would, that they passed over unscathed if they were really innocent. At that time, the Muslim world introduced trials by evidence. It uh, it had rules against uh, conviction if there was any doubt, etc., etc. But there have been other times, of course, when um, the West has been um, uh, uh, has been. Taken precedence, you know, and arguably, in certain regards, the West has got things righter now. You know, I mean, I'm, as I say, I've, I work in the field of human rights. I, my ideas are very strongly affected um, by that, and there are plenty of people in the Muslim world with whom I'd vehemently disagree. I'd have more in common with a Western human rights lawyer than I ever would with those, but with those people. But I do think it's important to, to have that perspective. Um, and it's very easy to lose that sense of perspective um, when, you, when you are convinced of your rightness. You know that's, that's certainly true of the Muslim world. But I would argue um, that it's true also in the West. You know? And I think it's very, very important that, that people don't just assume that um, because they have fixed ideas about what freedom looks like and what democracy looks like and what justice looks like, that, uh, that anyone who talks about, for example, the Sharia um, is completely opposed
1: to what they think. Sadakar Kadri, thank you so much. Appreciate thank you it very man. much for having me on.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at Uctv.tv